What the future holds? How many people have tried to convince you they know? When it comes to technology, my next guest looks back at what he calls the story of technology to take a stab at where it will take us next. Dan Gerstein is former acting undersecretary of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate. Now with Rand Corporation, he joins me now in studio. Dan, good to have you in. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Right now, you've got a book coming out. What does the future hold and how do you know? Well, there are a lot of people who are trying to deal with that question. Uh, but, you know, I think when we talk about technology, we have to go back and look at the history and understand that if you look at humanity, you can actually trace the history of humanity and the history of technology. They are one and the same. And if you start from that perspective, you find that uh, we are in for some very exciting times as we have new technologies on the horizon that are likely to shape humanity in some pretty extraordinary ways. All right, so are you going to tell us about artificial intelligence, or is there something even beyond that, perhaps, that might be on the horizon? I think certainly uh, what we are dealing with today, uh, I call it the convergence of technologies. But when you put together technologies such as artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, uh, and uh, biotechnology, we're in for some very interesting times. Uh, for example, what does it mean to be human uh, in an age where uh, computers can outthink, uh, your daily privacy is nearly completely eroded through the Internet of Things, uh, and even our DNA has been manipulated uh, to uh, be able to uh, have preferential outcomes. So in some ways, everything is becoming an information technology, even our genetics, because it's editable and programmable. Well, indeed. In fact, that's one of the things is that, you know, it's it's not necessarily biotechnology where we've made the leaps and bounds, but it's where you take the biotechnology, the decoding of the human genome, and you marry that with big data. Uh, and you have then uh, genomics and the complete understanding of uh, the human genome. You know, today we know less than 1% of what the human genome does. Uh, in the future, when we actually do understand how the genome functions, why it functions, uh, what is the stuff we used to call junk DNA, it'll be very exciting. Uh, it also has the potential to be uh, you know, quite uh, scary. And having come from a national security background and a homeland security department background, what do you feel the effects of these technologies will be on government? I guess in two terms. One, how will government need to somehow have a role in how all of this is deployed? And also, how will it affect the government's functioning of itself, which is always a question for technology? Well, I think you've hit on a really interesting point, and that is that when one thinks about government's role in uh, managing technologies, uh, we are able to see throughout history where uh, generally speaking, uh, only after we see uh, difficult uh, situations arise do we see government steps in, step in. For example, uh, look at drones. We've had several near misses with airliners. Uh, we've had several world leaders that have had drones land in front of the stage where they were speaking. Uh, it took quite some time until the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, uh, stepped in with some uh some regulations. And what about basic research? Because often what comes out as new technology, say from Silicon Valley, is really just rehashing of existing technology 
in new ways, programming, if you will, coding. Most of it's just coding. But the federal government has always been a backer of basic research at the Science and Technology Directorate at DHS. Probably fair to say that was more of an applied research house than a basic research funding house. I think you, you made that point on the show when you were undersecretary. But what do you see as the government's future role in funding basic research? Because there's been something of a pullback in recent years. I think that's a really important point. And it's one of the reasons why looking at the history is so interesting. If you go back to the 1940s and World War II and you think about uh, how we used uh, the technologies to support the war effort, we had a connected model. That is that when you did research, it was intended to transition and eventually become an operational capability. And that's good if you're in some sort of emergency such as World War II. But the question then uh, became after World War II, should we leave some space for the government to support basic research? And so you have this connected, disconnected model. And it doesn't mean that you should have vast amounts of money uh, being spent on basic research. But on the other hand, uh, we have great evidence of where basic research has been important And we didn't understand how important it would be until years later. Think about Niels Bohr, who worked on quantum physics. And today we're talking about using quantum computing uh, for everything from uh, encryption uh, all the way through to uh, running our, our systems. Yeah, that's really, that particular one happens to be one of the great races coming ahead, along with AI, that we have with our other great power competitors. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, to your point, though, on the, on the managing of, of these questions, uh, it really is something that the government is finding itself at a, at a disadvantage because most of the, the basic uh, and even applied research, uh, it really is done in industry now. And we've had this inversion. You know, years ago in the, in the 40s and 50s, we really did have the government as the driver of basic and applied research, 60 to 70 percent of all Uh, basic and applied was done by government. Today, it's completely inverted. It's 30% done by the government and 70% by industry, academia. We're speaking with Dan Gerstein. He's former acting undersecretary of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate, now with the RAND Corporation. And tell us about some of the work you're doing now. Well, I do a wide variety of uh, tasks related to Homeland Security and national security Uh, I'm doing uh, work uh, looking at borders around the world, Uh, have also done work helping uh, governments uh, looking at uh, where they're trying to stand up a homeland security-like capability, Uh, have also been doing work on cybersecurity and bioterrorism, which is following on very nicely from Uh, the work that I did in Homeland Security. And many of these problems, the border issues and so forth, the technology to solve them is ahead of the political, I guess, comity or agreement to to solve them, isn't it? Well, that's very true. And, you know, I think another thing that's really interesting uh, about the borders is that, uh, you know, we often talk about the security of our borders, and that's extremely important. But there's really a two-sided piece, and that is uh, it's not just about securing the borders, but it's also about facilitating uh, the flow of goods and services across those borders. This is all about our economic wherewithal. And if we're not careful, you know, if you have too much security and not enough of uh, the, the trade and travel, 
uh, that can stifle your economy. Likewise, if you don't have enough security, then you have a different sort of problem. And do you get the sense that there is some looming or still a borning uh, magic bullet, if you will, not a great word, for cybersecurity? I mean, I went to my first cybersecurity, they call it computer security conference back in 1985 or so. And really, it's still the same cat and mouse game that it always was. And the cat seems to be winning more than losing these days with all of the big data breaches. Is there something fundamental that, that you sense will change to reverse this equation? Well, it's a very complex question. I mean, you start with uh, everybody talks about needing good hygiene of the networks and well-trained people, trained people, so that you don't have uh, people accessing networks if they are not prepared and they don't understand what uh, attacks they could be subjected to. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think we have to do more uh, in terms of trying to change the dynamic, change uh, the attack surface and make ourselves less vulnerable. We also need to think about uh, this this network and understand that today we've turned it into somewhat of a utility. We have uh, these large uh, systems that are controlling uh, power plants and such uh, that have that touch the network. At the same time, we have uh, people who are just sharing information, not to diminish that. But I think we need to ask ourselves, does that model work any longer? And the title of your new book is The Story of Technology, How We Got There and What the Future Holds. In one sentence, what does the future hold? Or I'll give you two sentences. Okay, well, look, first, I I am absolutely enthusiastic about the future with technology. But I do think that uh, we have a lot of very serious discussions to be had. We haven't even discussed the future of work, but I think it's a really interesting topic. And it's one that is going to require the best minds from government, from industry, from society to be able to come together to solve and to, to make sure that the future is one that is hospitable to humankind. Yeah, I guess maybe there's a little hint of that in the president's management agenda with respect to trying to replace drudgery, if you will, or repetitive type of work, which is something that's been going on for a long time. But to accelerate that process to where more people can do higher value thinking type work and with robotic process automation and AI and all these technologies to do some of that drudgery. So maybe that's is that the beginning of where we need to start thinking? Well, I, I mean, I certainly think it's the beginning, but we also have to begin to understand what are those tasks that are uniquely human and will they remain unique, uniquely human? For example, we've always said that we, we believe that if it took judgment and perception that humans were better at those tasks. On the other hand, if it took uh, lots of calculations and repetitive tasks that uh, there might be an opportunity to replace. So, uh, I'd certainly see a world in which we transition and we have uh, human-machine teaming, and I think that will take advantage of the strengths and mitigate the weaknesses of both. Dan Gerstein is former Undersecretary of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate, now with the RAND Corporation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. And his book, The Story of Technology, How We Got Here and What the Future Holds, coming out in the fall. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.